Turn in your Bibles to Philippians. We're going to open up into chapter 4, and I want to read to you from verse 4, just one paragraph there. Um, my wife's encouragement, we just finished our series in Titus, a letter to Titus, and so we're kind of in between. It didn't seem worth starting a series, as we'll not, I won't be speaking for a few weeks, so I thought we'd do a one-off thing. And uh, she was encouraging me, just being um, sort of aware of a lot of things going on in people's lives, to just be, speak on this whole issue of peace and anxiety and so on from this passage. So I was being really gripped by it and really feel like this is going to be really important for many of us today. I actually just think it's probably one of the most important subjects to keep revisiting because unfortunately as Christians we're massively forgetful of the basic truths that we believe. And So let's read together from Philippians 4 and verse 4. This is Paul talking to a church in a city called Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul opens up this little section with a command. He tells us to rejoice. And uh, I don't want, you know, I think a word like rejoice has a kind of a slightly pious feel. And really, he's just saying to the Christians, be happy. And that's slightly odd when you think about it, because he's not, it's not so much just an invitation. It even has the force of a command. Rejoice, be happy in God. And again, I will say to you, be happy. And we need to immediately ask the question, well, how can, how can you not only call for it, but how can you command that? Isn't it a bit strange? I mean, we've probably all been around to someone's house where, you've, um, where the host has been so concerned to make sure that everyone's having a great time that they're just stressed out and on edge the whole time. It's like, be happy, be happy. And so the more you try and tell people to be happy, often it has a kind of the reverse effect. And yet... When we understand the reasons why Paul thinks joy or happiness in God is important, I think it begins to, you suddenly begin to understand what's going on here. Let me just try and unfold for you a little bit why I think he's telling us that Christians are not only called but even commanded to be the happiest people on earth. And part of it has to do with the fact that happiness is a, is a choice. I mean by that that I think, by and large, we tend to imagine that our joy in life is a passive thing based on things that are happening to us, based on our emotions in circumstances, based on our circumstances and all of that. And actually, there's a, a massively important point to be made from the Bible and also, I think, also from science and research that you can, you can have to a much greater extent than you realize a huge amount of control over the amount of joy and, and, and contentment you experience in life. When you go through the book of Psalms, for example, what you're, you're seeing here is a window into the soul of men who are wrestling with their struggles in day-to-day -day life and often experiencing real torment in their hearts and in their minds and in their spirits. But so often the journey of the Psalms is from a place of darkness through to light because they recognize that it's not enough just to be passively sitting around and wallowing in your 
in your frustration or your anxiety or your misery or whatever it is you're experiencing, but rather to take hold of what you know is true. So, for example, in Psalm 42, as often as the case, the psalmist is talking to his own heart and he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He looks inside and asks himself a question. Why are you miserable? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he turns it around and says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. All the way through the Psalms, you get this assumption that when a believer gets rightly oriented, they will move from a position of frustration, anxiety, and misery to a place of joy and peace in God. I've been reading an amazing book, which I think is just helping me a lot on this issue, called The Happy Christian by um, a pastor, come professor called David Murray. And he talks about in this book, he talks about this whole thing of, well, how much control do we have over this? He says that modern researchers, and you know, you've got to take this with a pinch of salt because I know there's massive shifts and changes in all these issues, but he says basically they've come to the realization that about 10% of your sort of day-to-day experience of happiness and joy in life is down to your um, life circumstances. So you can be put in the best possible life circumstances and it's only going to make about 10% difference. About 50% is to do with your, your kind of genetic makeup and who you are, which in some ways can be a little bit frustrating if, if you're a slightly more melancholic person. You know, if you look at my kids and you see how happy they are, I, I promise you this, it's everything to do with their mother and not so much due to me. So, but then he says, listen, let's not, let's not get disheartened. That means that there's a huge portion. And I think, obviously, we take it with a pinch of salt. We recognize the power of God. We recognize so many other factors. A huge portion of that, of who you are, is actually far more to do with how you understand and interpret and think about the situations of life. And I also want to add to that, of course, the implication that as Christians, we have a totally unique opportunity in there to experience and walk in the joy of God. So I think Paul understands that happiness is a choice, but I also think that he understands that happiness really matters in Christians and in churches. I want to just give you a few reasons why I think that's the case. For one thing, I think that your joy in life is a reflection and not all the time, and not, not, I don't want to make too tight a connection here, but it is a reflection in a general sense of your spiritual maturity in God and in Christ. What does the psalmist say to himself? He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. In other words, the person who understands at a deeper level the greatness and the trustworthiness and the reliability and the faithfulness of God and is able to put their, their confidence in him, will, should experience more joy and peace in life. It's a reflection of, your kind of, of a spiritual maturity in some ways. And add this, that it matters because it affects how your church and your service and, and your relationships, it affects so much of the way we interact and what our, our experience of church, if we're a joyful people or not. Have you ever been to churches that are miserable? Do you want to stay in them? Do you find yourself uplifted when you're among Christians who are downcast and perpetually in the dumps? Now, please, please don't come away from this feeling that I'm judging you or condemning you if you're one of those people I've already told you. I think I have a tendency towards melancholy, so I don't want us to go there. What I'm trying to say is that it matters to Paul that the churches that represent the gospel 
are places that are filled with joy. And also it's going to affect your experience of how you serve and receive service from other Christians. If you are joyful, you're able to take your mind off yourself and give yourself to other people, aren't you? But the more miserable we become, the truth is, the more wrapped up we get in our own problems. Happiness matters to Paul in the church, which is why he's saying rejoice in the Lord, because it matters in, in terms of our experience of church life. And here's another reason why I think it matters to him. It matters because of how the world perceives the faith that we as Christians profess. This one is huge, and you know, I don't think you can overstate it. What do people see when they look at us, when they look at, our, at the Christian faith? Rightly or wrongly, we've been maligned as being killjoys and, you know, um, often the word, you know, like Puritans or Puritanical is used as a kind of, you know, a criticism. Totally unfairly of the Puritans, I need to add. But, you know, one of the things that people think of Christians is that they're, they're not happy. And that's one of the things that most puts people off the church. And in, in his book, uh, Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones, which is one of the most sort of potent and powerful expositions of, of Christian joy, he, um, he talks about this. He says, in a sense, a depressed Christian is a, is a contradiction in terms. And he's speaking as both a medical doctor and a pastor. He says, he's a very poor recommendation for the gospel. We're living in a pragmatic age. Now, I think he said this in the 1950s. How much more is that true nearly 70 years on? We're living in a pragmatic age. People today are not primarily interested in truth, but they're interested in results. The one question they ask is, does it work? They're frantically seeking and searching for something that can help them. And he goes on and says, Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of lack of freedom and absence of joy. There is no question at all, but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. Now he was speaking at a time just when the scales were tipping, when churches that had been full were beginning to to fragment and to be empty on the back of two world wars and people becoming disillusioned with Christianity. I think 70 years on, the things that he's saying are more relevant and more pertinent now than ever. The world is asking the question, not what is true, which is the right question, of course, to ask, but they're rather asking what works. You don't have to spend five minutes on your Facebook feed before you see some offer of solution to improve your life, whether it's a life hack or some promise of a better life one way or another, because people are interested in results. Now, I I think that as Christians, we have both truth and what works, which I hope we'll see as we unfold this a little bit more. But it matters. That's what I'm trying to tell you. So what he says is, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And this word reasonableness just means appropriateness. It means that people ought to be able to see that what you say and what, how you feel and act actually match up. That there's something reasonable about your life in the sense that you have an appropriate emotional state to match the things that you profess and believe and speak about. In other words, there's something inappropriate about dull Christianity. In fact, I'd say any worldview that makes you consistently miserable is likely, I think, to be wrong. From our point of view, we believe in a God who is joyful, who created a wonderful creation. So if our worldview constantly 
destroys our joy, then there's probably something wrong with our worldview. But equally, if your Christian faith does not result in deeper, more lasting joy and happiness, then I think there must be something broken or some disjunction between what you claim to believe and what you really believe in your heart of hearts, your experience of the Christian life. Is it reasonable to be joyful or to be happy in all the circumstances of life? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? But you've got to understand where Paul was writing this from. Everything that you would think is legitimate to to steal your joy and steal your happiness, Paul had experienced even more than you or I. Sin. Guilt. Paul says that it's a saying trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that he was the worst of sinners, he says to Timothy. Paul actually genuinely looked at his own life and thought of all the people who've ever lived on this planet, I'm the worst. I mean, this guy, before he came to know Jesus, he had a bloodthirst to kill Christians. He was like the predator with desiring to get his prey, and the prey was Christians. So this guy had a massive weight of the issues that had laid on his conscience of what he'd done to Christians, people he'd, he'd sought out to hunt and kill and destroy. And yet he's able to say in a letter like this, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. All his conscience had been wiped clean and he knew Jesus has forgiven me. I don't deserve it, but Jesus has forgiven me. So no, your sin is not a good enough reason to stay miserable. Yes, it's a reason to be miserable for a moment, but repent of it, ask Jesus for forgiveness, and move on. Well, what about your your circumstances? What about, you know, if you're suffering and so on? Well, please, friends, don't forget that Paul suffered with lack and poverty. In the next page, he tells us, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And he said, it's, I know how to be content. You know, one of the major things that makes people unhappy in life is, of course, when you don't have enough. And it's a source of massive stress to people. And Paul says, that's actually not a good enough reason to remain miserable as a Christian. You can learn how to be content in any and every circumstance. And just to lay this on a little bit more thick for you, friends, please don't forget he was writing this from a jail cell. These jail cells didn't have Xboxes and TV and central heating and duvets and everything. I'm not saying that jail's a nice place to be in today, but it's a lot nicer than it was back then. In fact, he was not only a prisoner, he was also seriously not sure if he was going to survive. You you may remember in the first chapter, if you've read this before, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he says, he's in a dilemma. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And yet which I should choose, I cannot tell. He actually doesn't know whether it's better if he dies or keeps living. So no, your circumstances aren't actually the best reason to be miserable, friends, because... If Paul's biggest dilemma in life was whether he should die or not, then it kind of puts ours into perspective. We get stressed out about what shoes we should buy or, you know, what job to take and these kinds of things. And he's like, I can't tell whether I should die or not. You know, this is really weighing on my spirit. Like, what's right here? (laughs) 
So, no, for Paul, like, these things are not a good enough reason. As Christians, we're compelled, we're called, we're commanded, and we're invited to experience greater joy and peace and happiness in life. Now, as we move on in what he's saying here, I think we, get, we start to drill into probably the number one reason why just normal people, all of us, experience a loss of joy, a lack of joy in day-to-day life. And it's anxiety. I think you could call it the common cold of joylessness because it's something that we all catch. We all struggle with anxieties on a day-to-day basis, which is why he goes on and says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I've, you know, I want to be honest with you and just say, because I think sometimes people wrongly think that a preacher has a different experience of life than, than ordinary Christians. And it just isn't true. I know what anxiety feels like. You know, what do you think it felt like when we started this church with the nine of us? And like we turn up Sunday every week, and I honestly didn't know if anyone was coming back from the last week, apart from the people who told me they were coming. They were kind of like bound by their promise, but you know, they, they had to come. And you know, the same happens even now. Like, I really don't know if you guys are coming back next week. It's wonderful that you are. I love you guys, and I'm, I'm sure that that's mutual to some degree. But you know, these things cause anxiety. You'd have to be unhuman not to feel that. Every Sunday, you have to stand up here. I have to stand up here and speak to you guys and try and unfold to you the Word of God and life-changing truth. And man, it feels a bit of pressure, you know. You do feel these anxieties. I've known anxiety so bad on one occasion that it caused me to vomit. It was before a Greek exam when I was trying to learn New Testament Greek, and I got so worked up about an hour before the exam, I vomited. I've known. Anxiety of you know crisis moments like when C gave birth to Seth and uh, about ten minutes after the birth she began to bleed out because of uh, the placenta was not fully removed and so on and in that bleeding as you see that this pool of blood just like pouring out on the table sorry if any of you get queasy by this but the the midwife told me oh could you pull that red cord she said very calmly I didn't know what the red cord was I grabbed it and pulled it the alarm went off on the entire ward. Doctors rush in, and I was freaking out in that moment. I mean, I I was thinking, is my wife going to make it through this? Now, thankfully, in the grace of God, we've got amazing doctors and physicians, people who are able to sort out that stuff. But if she'd been giving birth 50, 100 years ago, that would have been that. I'd be a single dad. I don't know what anxiety feels like. We all do, right? It's really been interesting to me that recently there's... um, a song that's been in the charts all around the world. I mean, it's been here in the charts, in the charts in the States, and also in Malaysia. Every other song, every, we listen to the radio, and they've played the same five songs and repeat, and this was one of them. And it's this song, Stressed Out, by 21 Pilots. It says, I was told when I got older, all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure, and I care what people think. My name's Blurry Face, and I care what you think. My name's Blurry Face, and I care what you think. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. We're stressed out. We used to play pretend, give each other different names. We'll build a rocket ship and then we'd fly it far away. Used to dream of outer space, but now they're laughing at our face saying, wake up, you need to make money. Now, why is that song popular? I don't think it's because of the musical skill. It's a pretty awful song. I think it's because it, it's hit a note in people's hearts. 
they know that it's a common experience, that childhood, for, for most, not all, but for many of us, we look back and think, wow, that was a time in life when I had no cares or concerns. And now? Now I wake up concerned. And I go to sleep, if I get to sleep, concerned. So anxiety, it's not obviously a uniquely Christian problem, it's a world problem, but it's the thing which I think is most likely to steal a Christian's joy, which is why, I believe, Paul immediately goes from rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, straight into do not be anxious about anything. It's like he's reading our minds because he knows hearts and he's telling us beforehand what is likely to steal our joy. Friends, I want us to just unpack what his advice means to us here. He tells us something to know, something to do, and something to receive. But before I get into that, what is it that makes you anxious in day-to-day life? Just think about what the things are. Is it your future? Is it your success? Is it yourself? Is it what people think of you? Is it your health? Is it your work? Is it your relationships? What is it? First of all, then, he tells us something we need to know. He says at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. In my version, it's got semicolon, do not be anxious. The Lord is at hand. There's a logical connection between knowing the Lord is at hand and do not be anxious. Here it is. That peace comes from knowing that God is on your side. This is why I began the service In Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come, he says. And you imagine you're the psalmist, you're living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has hills on a number of its sides, particularly the hills that are on the east side, which separate Jerusalem from the Judean desert. Beyond there is just wilderness and other places and nations and all kinds of stuff. And you think, what's going through this guy's head is this. I have no idea what's on the other side of those hills at any given moment. There could be an army of a million Persians for all I know. I lift up my eyes to the hills. And when you lift up your eyes to the hills, all these what-ifs begin to circulate. What is, what is beyond the hills? Isn't that how anxiety begins in the heart? It begins with all the what-ifs and the contingencies and the uncertainties and the probabilities of what is or might be happening to you now or in the future. It's because we can't control things, right? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Ah, my help, he says, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Speaks of his power. He made heaven and he made earth. So I don't need to be afraid of what lies beyond those hills. But he also speaks of God's attentiveness. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's the wonderful balance that the Bible always shows between God's hugeness, or what the theologians call his transcendence, that he is above and beyond us. He's different from us. He's so much greater than us. But then also his closeness, or as they put it, his imminence, that he even cares about where your foot lands as you walk step in front of step. Now, this assumes 
that the words, the Lord is at hand, the words that Paul uses, are good news to you. Because the Bible also tells us that God takes sides. Psalm 125, he says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Who does God surround? He says he surrounds his people. Who are they who can know this peace? He says, those who trust in the Lord. If God takes sides, if he's one who's if he's for people who trust in him, the question you need to ask before we go any further is, is that you? Have you surrendered your life to him? If I can put it like this, I think that the peace that we can have from God, the peace that Paul talks about in this passage in Philippians, is preceded always by having peace with God. In the book of Romans, when Paul's talking about what it means to be a Christian, he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, which is just another way of saying you've become a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, he says, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying is that prior to that, you didn't have peace with God. God was your enemy. When you don't know him as your father, you know him as your enemy. But as soon as you put your faith in Jesus, and you say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. I make you Lord of my life, and I believe that your death on the cross was sufficient for me. I want to turn from my sins and give my life to you. As soon as you do that, Paul says you have peace with God. So before you can know the words, the Lord is at hand, as good news to your life and your circumstances right now, you have to have peace with God. When you know him as father, when you become part of the family, the privileges begin to roll in. That's when you can say with the psalmist that the Lord is your keeper, as he says in Psalm 121. He says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. These are not promises for just anyone. These are promises for people who become rightly related to their creator, to the living God. He takes the closest interest in the tiniest details of your life. In the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is talking about fear and he says, are five sparrows sold for two pennies? In other words, they're very cheap birds. You can, people sell them in cages and you can buy them for two pennies. He says, not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. When you know that you are a child of God, you know that he cares about the number of hairs ever diminishing on my head. <laughs> Something you need to know. Secondly, something you need to do. What does he say? He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So obviously, you don't have to be a theologian to know that the basic message here is very simple. It is pray, pray, pray. Now, I want to say just, a moment of caveat to that. I don't think that Paul had in mind that the only answer to all the anxieties in your life is prayer. 
Because Paul was a man of action and he understood the need to act in life. In fact, just over the page, he says, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he says there are things that you have to do in life because they're the right thing to do or because God's called you to do them. And with that, he'll give you his peace. And we don't set off prayer and action as though they're contradictory things. You know, it's not as though we want to go through life saying, you know, just, I think a lot of us maybe would even use prayer as a form of procrastination, like avoiding doing stuff because you're just praying about it. Like, should I marry this person? I'm praying about it. No, just marry them, you know, (laughs) this kind of thing. But more likely than not, most of you, you know, I don't think many of us suffer from the problem of praying too much, do we? It's like, my problem is I just pray far too much. Yeah, right. I really don't believe that. So... So whatever we want to say about action, sure, it's important to do the right things in life. And some of you, your fears, your anxieties are because you are totally just not doing your responsibilities. And fine, you need to hear from this that God does call you to do certain things. And you can't expect God just to give you peace as you chill out and don't bother putting in applications for jobs or don't bother revising for your exams or whatever it is that you're, you're facing right now. So, yeah, that's kind of a given. However, the emphasis here for Paul is on prayer when we're anxious because prayer comes before, during, and after we act. It comes before we act because I think prayer is the thing which can most likely free you from whether it's the procrastination or that paralysis of analysis when something is just too daunting or too scary to confront. Get on your knees until you have enough courage to start. For others of you, you know, prayer's got to come before you act because maybe you have a kind of control freak tendency where you just take everything into your control and try and you go into hyperdrive and overactivity. And God will want you to say, no, stop, pause. You haven't even come to me and asked for my help yet. Prayer must come before we act. Prayer also comes during, because how often do we find that when we're, we're going about the things, our responsibilities in life, or facing circumstances in life, we all reach moments where we just feel this is too much for me. We're finite beings. There's only so much energy we have in a day. Only so many hours we can stay awake. Only so many things we can remember at one time. Or so many tasks we can do at one time. And multitasking is a myth. I'm sorry, ladies. It's just just nonsense. So my wife argues with me about this, but it's just not true. You can only ever do one thing at a time. And if you're not, you're doing it badly. So... In the moments where you are frustrated and struggling and anxious and weighed down with all you're bogged down in, prayer comes during these things. Because it should be your source of refreshment and strength. How often when we are overwhelmed are we tempted to the things that we know do us no good? Whether it's to gluttony or to time-wasting or to something that you know is, is wrong. I think often it's because you're not allowing your heart to just explode in prayer to God about all the things that you're handling. Prayer should come before, during, but also after. Because whenever you get through a situation or complete something by the grace of God, what should come from our mouths? But thanksgiving and prayer and committing it to him. Now, when we dig into what Paul then says about prayer, I hope you can see with me that prayer is absolutely fundamental to 
living this kind of life of joy and peace. Let's just unfold what he tells us about prayer. And I just want to give you four tips here that I think he helps us to see. First of all, he says, pray about everything. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. The reason why I'm saying this, and it may feel like a simple point, but is I, if you pause and think about it, I think that we tend to avoid two kinds of prayers. We tend to avoid stuff which we think is too big to pray about, because my prayers can't possibly touch that. You know, I mean, how many of us have really seriously given ourselves to prayer about this EU referendum? Now, I, I think you and I could debate all day long about what is the right outcome, but I, thankfully, I think God knows better than us. And maybe it's too big for us to concern ourselves with. Well, give it to him. But then, more likely than not as well, most of you feel that there are things in your life too small to pray about. Now, would God really be interested in dot, dot, dot? Now, yeah, I think that's pretty much never the case, except whether your sport team wins. I don't think you should bring I don't really watch sports. I'm biased about this. But, you know, pray about everything, Paul says. Pray about everything. If the sports results are stressing you out, you need to pray about why your heart is given to so much idolatry of sports. (laughs) But pray about everything. Secondly, as you pray, don't be afraid to simply ask for stuff. Because Paul says here, he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication. Now, it's weird that he uses two words there, because generally people understand prayer as you know, coming to God and asking for things. And he says, by prayer and supplication, just to underline it and make sure you really understand what he's saying here. He's saying, go to God and ask him for what you need. The reason why I underline that for you, because I think a lot of people think that there's something lacking or impious or irreverent about just asking God for stuff. You know, they, they kind of talk about it in a scathing way. It's like, oh, you're just bringing your shopping list to God. And I hear many prayers that where, where people just pray about something without ever asking for anything in particular. Be like, and we pray about the Middle East, Lord, we pray. And we pray, what are you praying for? You haven't actually asked for anything. He says, by prayer and supplication, which means that you recognize God is all-sufficient, all-powerful, and loves you, and that he has the answer to your very specific issues, and you need to lay them before him very carefully and in detail. Just bring it all to him and ask him. In fact, I think that this kind of prayer glorifies God. Because if God is a creator who loves us to express our trust and faith in him, he delights when you come to him like a child does to their parents with just your most basic needs. He doesn't scorn it or push it away as though it is irreligious or impious. He loves it when we come to him and say, God, I have nothing if I don't have you. I need you right now in this. Pray in everything. Don't be afraid to ask for stuff. Here's a third thing. Keep saying thank you. Because he says here, The Lord's at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Now, please, let's not think that that Paul's here is... It's not like when you've got kids, and your kid comes and asks you for something like an ice cream or whatever, which happens regularly for us, and you're like, what do you say? And Seth's like... 
please can I have an ice cream? Thank you. And it's, like, it's not the magic word. You don't need to think that Paul's saying here, oh, here's the magic word. God will listen to you if you say please and thank you when you come to him in prayer. I don't think it's that at all. I think what he's, what he's talking about here is, look, if our fundamental problem is anxiety, and prayer is the answer, prayer with thanksgiving is powerful in changing your, everything about how you feel. It's partly because it's worship. And as you begin to thank God and pour out your heart in worship, it resets your whole perspective on your situation. It's partly because it's faith. Because as you say thank you to God, you're assuming that he is able to answer the prayer that you're offering to him. And it's partly just a solution in itself because anxiety melts away when we remember the faithfulness of God. You are here, you are living, you are breathing. Up to now, you've had enough food, enough water, enough shelter to get to this moment. You have plenty to be thankful for and not so much to be anxious about. With thanksgiving. Everything feels different when you can say thank you to God. And here's the last tip about prayer. Don't hesitate to spell it out. Maybe I've already made this point, but I want to make it doubly clear to you because he says here, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, listen to how he puts it. Be made known. Now, it kind of sounds, if you think about it, like God doesn't know before you tell him. Psalm 139, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. There's nothing you can say to God that he doesn't already know, and no prayer that you can offer that he isn't already aware of. In Matthew 6, when Jesus is talking about prayer, he says you don't need to babble along like people do when they, you know, the pagans used to pray. He says, He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. But neither for the psalmist nor for Jesus is this a reason not to pray. Rather, it's a reason to pray. And this is the mystery of prayer in the Bible. That even though God knows what we need before we ask him, even though as you come to him, you can't tell him something that he isn't already aware of, nevertheless, he has made so much of what you enjoy in the Christian life conditional upon whether you will do it or not. He actually wants you to do it and not skip it. And I think if we stop and are really honest about our lives, very often the things that we are most anxious about, we are concerned about because we have skipped prayer. And Paul says you need to come to God and make it known to him. Use your mouth. Use your words. That's what we say to Seth when he's screaming. Use your words. That's <laughs> what we have to do. Let me bring us to our final point as we close. Something to know, something to do, something to receive. He says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Nothing, I'm not sure that any word quite captures the Christian's inheritance as fully as the word peace does. It's a very rich word. 
It's a rich word that has its roots all the way back in the blessings of the Old Testament, this word shalom, which means well-being. Where you have peace with God, peace with others, and in fact, even just peace with yourself. It's a wonderful word, and I think, you know, if you could have one word that captures what we believe about our future with God and eternity, peace would be a good one to describe it. But this peace comes from a knowledge that God himself is perfectly at peace. Have you ever thought about this? Nothing stresses him out. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing overpowers him or threatens him. Nothing makes him lose his cool. He is at peace in himself. God is the God of peace. And Jesus... When he was speaking to his disciples, he said he spoke of himself as the kind of the bridge of this peace, as the peace of God, the peace that God enjoys with himself, and which Christ then therefore walked in as the Son of God, perfectly God, perfectly man. But he also then turns to his disciples and tells them that they can enjoy this. He says, Peace I leave with you in John 14. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It was Jesus' parting gift to his disciples before he would go to the cross and rise and ascend. He said, peace is the gift that I want to give you. My peace I give to you. I think it's interesting that he says, not as the world gives. Because if we look around us, If you want to understand the basic driver of human activity, I think it's the search for peace. I think it's one of the most fundamental motivators in all human activity. And unfortunately, people tend towards one or two different extremes when they're looking for peace. They either tend towards escapism, which is where you just bury your head and you think... There are things in life I cannot change or deal with, and therefore I will deny them or turn away from them. This is why people try and find peace in momentary thrills. It's why people turn to drugs. It's why people turn to alcohol. It's why people turn to sex as a means of transcendent experience of peace. It's why people crash out of life. It's why people give themselves to entertainment to an unhealthy degree or food or whatever it is. It's a form of turning the back on the the stresses that we can't face up to through escapism. And unfortunately, everyone knows that it's only ever temporary. Because whatever peace you enjoy for a fraction of time melts away when reality crashes down on you. But if we don't turn to escapism, we also turn to solutionism, which is an effort to try and control everything which we can't have peace about to get the perfect job, to have the perfect family, to have the perfect relationship. And we turn to all these kind of hacks and, and, uh, and life advice and productivity advice to try and get things in control, ourselves in control, and our circumstances and situations in control so that we can experience peace. But unfortunately, soon enough you realize how finite you are And that no matter how gifted and able you are as a person, life will crash in on you as well. A spouse will die. 
And if that was your, your source of peace, your fountain of peace, what happens when that happens, when they've gone? Your children may turn their back on you or your job may come to an end. If all your peace is built on controlling your life and your circumstances and your situation, it will not and it cannot last. So when Jesus says, my peace I give to you, and he says, not as the world gives, he's saying, you can look for peace everywhere, but you won't find anything like the peace that I offer. Which brings me back to what Paul is saying here in Philippians 4. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. There's lots of things I can say about that, but I really only want to say one. That I think he's describing something that is fundamentally supernatural. That it's a gift from God. That it's something he does for you, that he gives to you, and that is from him, and that you cannot find it anywhere else. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. What it does... We go right back to the beginning where Paul tells us that we're to have joy, rejoice. But if we are to have hearts that are guarded in joy and keep our joy, they need to be surrounded by this peace. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your spiritual life, your thought life, Every part of your being will be guarded by the peace of God, this supernatural gift that comes from knowing him as your father and giving your problems to him. It's not that God promises Christians easy lives or perfect lives or even better lives than the person next to you. Paul can tell us that he experienced the worst of it. It's rather that he gives you a supernatural peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. I want us to close and have a couple of moments of prayer right now. We're going to take communion later as we sing and worship God, but I think the right way to respond to this right now is in a very personal way with God. I'll lead you in prayer, but I think it matters that each of us if you felt anything of the resonance of what I've been talking about, anything of the stresses and frustrations of life, you want to come to him and have dealings with him and experience this peace afresh. God doesn't say you have to wait for this. He just says, pray. Father, we want to come to you. And Lord, first of all, I want to pray for those of us who feel that we may not even be at peace with you, never mind having not experience peace from you. We confess, Lord, that we are so often given to sin and things that we know displease you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who feels that they need to know you, perhaps for the first time, that you would give the gift of faith, even right now, to believe that you have saved them from their sin through Jesus. For those of us, Lord, who call you Father and know, Lord, that you've been good to us and that you've saved us through Christ, Lord, we are sorry that so often we fail to deal with our anxieties and fears the right way. 
And even now, Lord, we lay it before you. This thing which has been weighing on our hearts and bothering us and destroying our peace and stealing our joy. Lord, you know that the prayers that are rising up from hearts all across this room, you know, Lord, the ways that we need to hear from you and see your, your answers to prayer. Lord, would you come and minister your presence and your spirit to bring us to greater joy. And Lord, for those among us, Lord, for whom this is a chronic issue, not just a momentary issue, but Lord, where they walk with a limp, whether because of overwhelming life circumstances or fragile mental health, Whatever it be, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to love them with such surrounding love. But more importantly, Lord, that you would draw near in a profound way, even now, to bring healing and release and freedom. That the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. Amen.